Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Todd Williams, president of Karen University in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, to discuss the topic of courageous leadership. Effective leadership assumes that leaders will face difficult circumstances that require them to lead with courage. Join us in a conversation that will sharpen your leadership edge. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education, and we are honored to have with us this week, Todd Williams. Todd is currently the president of Karen University, and he's been around education pretty much his entire professional career with stents in the Christian K-12 world, as well as in higher education. And I've invited Todd in to talk about the subject of generally about leadership, but specifically to look at this whole idea of courageous leadership. I think it's a hot topic in the literature right now, and I'd like us to kind of chat through what, what does courageous leadership look like. So welcome, Todd. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Philip. Good to be with you. So to kick off our conversation, as you reflect back and before we actually jump into the leadership side, and this question actually may kind of bleed into our conversation, as you reflect back over your life, share with us one experience or, or, or something defining moment that God has used in your life, either in your personal life or professional life that has kind of shaped who Todd Williams is. Yeah, I think the, a lot of things that sort of stand out that I, that I look at sort of formative moments, but there was one particular experience my wife and I met in Christian camping, and I actually went off to what's now Karen University, what was Philadelphia College of Bible, was a married student. Then I went off to study the Bible, and there was one particular time in an upper-level Bible class where I had a significant spiritual experience when a professor was teaching through the book of Hebrews that was extremely confronting to me, very penetrating, and, and which is ironic, right? It comes from that, that book that says the Word of God is living and active and able to divide between them. And just remember being so completely undone in terms of coming coming face to face with some spiritual realities in my life, even as a an older married student, sitting in the class room for a half an hour by myself after the class ended, going home and, and telling my wife, you know, this particular studying this particular book, dealing with this particular passage, just completely undid me. And it was a significant moment to, you know, a big lurch forward spiritually and professionally to sort of realize my dependence on the grace of God and and being a more spiritually attuned person at a time when I actually thought I was. But the other thing that happened for me in, with regard to our work was, and, I, and ever since I've been saying this to our students, you will not grow spiritually in spite of your academics, but because of them, uh, especially the way in which you do it. So it, was, it, it, it had a profound impact on me spiritually. It, it sort of set me on a path to think about how I would minister to others, but it also gave me a frame of reference for our work in biblical higher education that we don't have to tell students the Bible isn't a textbook because it's not a textbook. It's the revelation of God himself, and it is living and active. And 
they will be changed spiritually because of their academics, not in spite of them. So, yeah. That's powerful. Thanks for sharing that. So when you were at that stage of thinking ahead to what God had for you from a ministry perspective, you were there as a married student. Did you think then that you'd end up where you are now? No, I, I'm first generation college kid, like so many of our students in, in the ABHE schools and would never have thought about being a, a professor or an administrator, eventually a college president. To be perfectly honest, I, I went off to school thinking about either ministry or a life in politics. And so was sort of sorting that out. I never would have seen myself in the role that I was in. And while I think, you know, we, you and I have talked about this before, there's a point where you realize that you are sort of naturally inclined to leadership. And for most people, like a teacher, you know, I hire teachers, they're just born teachers. They've been teaching since they were four years old, you know, the sort of, you know, their pets, their friends. And I think I look back and say, yeah, I've always kind of seen this sort of tendency to end up in a leadership role, but I never would have seen myself in this role when I was a student. Yeah. I just didn't, didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing about how God works in our life, right? Proverbs, Proverbs 69, in his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Yeah, exactly. But yet you had that foundational experience that set a foundation that even today is reflecting in, in even how you approach leadership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Let's, let's dig in to that subject of leadership and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about kind of that, that courageous leadership, what, what it is, but before we do that, talk about leadership style, because I think sometimes courageous leadership is lumped in with kind of, well, that's a style of potential leadership. As you reflect back over your leadership, both in the, the K-12 sector and in higher education, how, how, how would you address that idea of leadership styles? Did, did, did you have multiple styles? Have you always had one style? Has, have you come in and out? Has it been something that wisdom has geared you into a, a direction? Yeah, when when I start to think about or talk about leadership or in my work in grad school and studying it within social systems, there there's sort of formal positional leadership, and then there's sort of you know the sort of informal emergent role of influence that people have. It's not really tied to office; it's more tied to who they are as a person and the skills they bring. And then there are these contextual leaders that you know you, you really wouldn't have seen it, but something in the context demands that they step up and they step up. You know, there's sort of and, and so. There's all these different ways to think about leadership, but I think one of the things that happens when we start talking about styles is we either think that you are bound by your personality, right? So your style is related to your personality. So you say, well, I'm a listener, I'm a consensus builder. And then, or, or you look at style as though it's sort of a hat to wear or a tool to draw. Like in this case, I'm going to do uh, X, Y, Z. And I think what ends up happening is we have styles that are tied to our personalities. I mean, I certainly think that, you know, I, I'm comfortable with a particular style of leadership that suits my personal proclivities and affectations and all of those kinds of things. But then I think there are times where you just have to sort of step up. So instance, you know, if someone, I'll meet someone and say, well, I, you know, I'm a consensus builder. Well, that's great unless we're trying to get people out of a burning building. Then we need you to actually assume a different kind of role, right? You know, employ a different kind of style. So I think what happens is that people start thinking, well, my personal psychology will determine what kind of leader I am all the time, that's going to be problematic. If you then think, well, you know, I'm just going to actually view it as sort of a collection of tools, you tend to be more manipulative and you're trying to pick which which style will get certain thing done. You take a very Machiavellian approach to sort of getting something done where I think, and, you, and your point there about wisdom is an interesting one, because I think the relationship between wisdom and virtue, character and leadership is one that could really be explored. Because I actually think when you read the scripture, you see 
what I think really is the implication for leadership, which is leadership is situational. And we don't mean situational like we talk about situational ethics. What we mean is that you must actually not take the same approach every time in every situation. For instance, I always use this example. I doubt it very much that David sat down with Solomon and said, listen, son, one day when you're king, women are going to come to you with a fight over a baby. If you say this works every time, I, I just don't think that's the way it works. I think what happens is, you know, Psalm, David didn't tell Solomon, always threaten to cut the baby in half. Works like a charm every time, son. I think it's more Solomon understood human nature and said, thought creatively about this particular situation. That may not have worked with other be- other moms and, and mothers. And I, I think he read that situation and did something to solve a problem as king and, and leader that was situational. And I, I think that's really what wisdom calls us to do is to not be too monolithic or strapped into one way of doing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how you brought in the wisdom, the wisdom element to that and uh, could, couldn't agree more. And as I've grown in my leadership, I'm a little bit behind you age-wise, but, but draw some of, the, some of the same conclusions. I think too, too much we get enamored with the leadership literatures out there that we have to somehow identify a, with a label of, this, this is the type of leader I am, therefore I'm going to pursue positions that will maximize that type of, and we kind of lock into that when that might be point in time the case, but situations are going to demand something different. Yeah, and I think when when people say, "Well, you know, that's not the kind of leader I am," so you know, I'll talk to some say, "Yeah, you know, I'm just not someone who's who's big on the numbers." Okay, well, I hope you're not leading an organization that needs you to be big on the numbers because you know you can say, "Well, I mean, that's not my bent. I'm not a mathematician." But you know, when I found myself without a CFO, I did that job for six months along with my job. That's what you kind of have to do those things, and I think I do think that the leadership liter- literature can trip us up a little bit because it's sort of it's trying to appeal to us as readers, not necessarily as leaders. And that's a problem, right? And that's where I think one of the things we need to do is as leaders be reading histories and biographies, see what other people have done. And what you'll notice is the people that have made really significant impact in history have not been people who have sort of been bound to the trade literature, so to speak. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking to that, I think uh, oftentimes, and and certainly don't mean to fully bash the literature that's out there. Per- perhaps maybe it's in the it's in the category of the pop leader- leadership literature. The, the people read that, and I like even your focus of it's to the reader, not to the leader. They they'll read a book on on leadership and they aspire to it. And I think we're kind of caught, especially in Christian circles, we're kind of caught in this: wherever you are, you can be more, and you can be something else, and you can be the leader, right? There's this trajectory that we all feel like that if we're not doing, somehow we're out of God's will, if we're not pursuing leadership kinds of things. And I think one of the one of the draws is is something is a term that I came across a number of years ago, and that's the romance of leadership. That I'm drawn to leadership because of the perceived benefits that I get a title, I get treated nice, I get a salary, I get whatever it is. But then quickly realize that leadership is 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 not that. From your experiences, you yourself or those that you've led, ha- have you seen this play out, and, and and how have you seen it play out? Yeah. So so almost invariably, if I'm meeting with a group of sort of emerging leaders, younger folks that are trying to be leaders, men and women who are thinking they want to be in a leadership position, which is important. Be careful with the language, right? They want to be in a leadership position, and they'll say, "You have any, you know." quick advice for us. And and one of the things I've really sort of been my go-to is 
take your job very seriously and yourself not so much. Because essentially what happens is you get caught up in this idea that it is the romance. That you've romanticized it. You're aspiring to it. You think that what comes with it is status and privilege, maybe more money, certainly more influence, more power, recognition, prestige, freedom. When in fact, if we actually think about that, that's related to position. And there is such a thing as positional leadership, but leadership functionally, what the word actually means is, is the function of leading. It's the act of leading, of influencing, of moving and directing. And so it's entirely possible that you have people in your organization who are significant leaders who don't hold office, who don't have a position of leadership. And we all sort of deal with that. And I think those that are aspiring to achieve the position because of what that will do for them. My experience is, well, first of all, far too many of them actually do get it because it's not it's not that hard to get it if you want it. But they're often not as effective as they could be if they saw that what they're doing is stepping into a function that will require everything they have and require a degree of sacrifice. And it's not about the privilege, it's about the burden of it. You know, and I think that that's the issue, you know. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And maybe talk to us for for you personally. This isn't one of the scripted questions, but as you've been in the senior leadership position, pretty much your entire professional career, right? But, uh, you know, when you're at the K-12, you had a stand as a provost or VP of, of academic affairs. What, what's that like? What, what, what's, what, when, you, when Todd Williams goes home at night and uh, you talk to your wife about your day and, and, and what is it like leading an organization? Like, what do you take home with you? What are the what are those nuances that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily, because you're in a public position, right? You're the leader. But for you personally, how do you work through those? You know, I think, I think one of the things is that you if, you, if you embrace what it means to be in a position of leadership and to be a leader, even in the informal sense, you, you actually then think about what you're doing in the best sense of calling, which is, this is what I'm wired for. So for instance, you know, I, I've often said to my people, you know, because uh, everybody's wired differently. They say, I don't know how you do what you do. Of course you don't, because you're not wired for it. I don't know how you do what you do. I don't know how you actually can do that all day. Now, what I need you to understand is I don't need you to worry about the monsters under the bed. I've got that. I'm not losing any sleep. I don't lose any sleep over the monsters under the bed. What I lose sleep over is you worrying about the monsters under the bed because you're not wired for that. That's not who you are. So When you actually realize, look, we're all given certain abilities and gifts and tendencies and personalities and experiences that we have various roles to play. I actually accept the role of being in this position and have embraced it as a calling such that I don't I'll find myself feeling the weight of decisions or the burden or or 
you know, some sort of vulnerability in the institution or a personnel issue, which weigh very heavy on us all the time. But I don't ever really find myself complaining about being the leader because I didn't want, I didn't want to be that. I just sort of found myself, this is just who I am. I'm just doing, I'm just doing what I was made to do. And so I, I don't find myself saying, you know, I don't really, it's really lonely at the top. I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's more just sort of, yeah, I had a lot of things coming at me today. The volume was heavy or I, you know, I had to give somebody some hard news today. But it's not actually about being the president or the chief executive. It's more sort of just talking about the volume or helping somebody through a hard thing or, you know, dealing with some other vulnerability that came up during the day or some problem that had to be solved. It's going to take more energy than you thought, but not actually that. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this uh, topic of courageous leadership, it's in the literature. Several books have been written about it. As I have gotten to know you through the years, you serve on the ABHE board, and you and I have made some connections through the years. As I've looked at what you've done at Karen University, I would say you fall into what I would classify a courageous leadership. There, there are things that you've done that you know people don't all know. There are some things that that you know have hit the press, right? That have been courageous decisions that that you have made. But talk to us about what does courageous leadership mean to you? What is it, and what isn't it? Yeah, so it actually goes back full circle where we started on the issue of style, right? If you think that courageous leadership is a style, or you think that courage in leadership is a nine iron in your bag, or it's a you know a three quarter inch socket in your toolbox, or whatever metaphors you want to use to sort of say this is what. So now I'm going to pull out courageous leadership. I think it's to miss what courage really is. It is a virtue. It's a character quality, and it manifests itself in virtually every decision, right? I mean, I, I have a series that I've done here in chapel over the years, the, the the habitual life of virtue, which is actually talking about what I think are biblical virtues, but the Greeks were talking about them a long time ago, wisdom, justice, temperance, fortitude. That And one of the things that Lewis wrote about those cardinal virtues, what are called the cardinal virtues, is that without fortitude, without courage, none of the other virtues actually come into play because to be temperate means that you actually have to be courageous enough to curb your own tendencies and to stop yourself. So one of my great, one of, one of the things that I, historical moments that I think are really incredible when you think about courage in leadership, there are two that stand out to me that I often refer to. The first is that John Adams is one of my favorite American presidents. And people always ask me why. And I say, because he had the courage to keep us out of a war in Europe. He actually showed great fortitude in restraining American sentiment and American policy that would have engaged us in a war at that time that could have brought the country to its knees. And so you would think, well, courage is wading into battle, right? Actually, I think he displayed an awful lot of courage to take criticism and face the fact that he was not going to get reelected because of how he handled certain things, because it was the, the right thing to do. And it took a lot of courage to do it. And then, of course, there's that great story out of World War II where Churchill orders the sinking of the French fleet which is a big act of courage because he basically can't let those ships fall into Nazi hands. But uh, the only choice was to sink those vessels. And so that's another one where he did something very hard. And it's not it doesn't come from a place of courage was a tool at the moment or a stylistic application. It came from the fact that these men possessed the virtue of courage. They did not consider their own livelihood, well-being, reputation, success, achievements, accolades to be anything they would preserve. They gave themselves up for the work of leading and making a decision that could have cost them everything. And so I think that courage as a virtue is really the issue. We have to be people who are, and, and I 
actually think that I actually think that people of faith should be among the most courageous. We have absolutely nothing to lose, right? To die is to live as Christ, to die is gain. We have nothing to lose. We should be the most courageous people on the planet. And so I think that that virtue of courage is one that has to be cultivated in people. And so every leader should possess the virtue of courage. Now, some are more or less willing to do things where there are going to be difficulties and they persuade themselves into thinking, well, if we do that, for instance, we make this decision, alumni are going to be upset. The question isn't whether alumni are going to be upset. The question is, is it the right decision for the institution in the fulfillment of our mission? Yeah. So go a little bit deeper with, with some of that. Cause I think that's, that's going to be a, that that's absolutely a, a, a core principle. So, so what causes us as leaders to, to not make courageous decisions? Well, if you, I always do this, if you think, okay, well, this and not that courage and not what, yeah, what's the, if we're not being courageous, what are we being that? Yeah, that's sort of the way that I tend to think of what is courage? Not well, courage is, first of all, courage is not bravado. It's not machismo. It's not sort of overpowering people to show them how strong you are, that you can take them or that you can do a hard thing. It's not that, but also the opposite of courage is fear. And I think what ends up happening is people are afraid. They're afraid to make a decision that will be unpopular. They're afraid to do something that people will question. They're afraid that they'll get attention from the press. And those might be reasons to affect how you roll something out or how you communicate a decision or how you navigate a decision. But if the decision that needs to be made is a right decision and what is best and every and you and whatever paradigm you have for decision making has said that, then you go forward and what you do is account for the music you'll have to face. But you don't make you don't not make a decision because it's going to be hard for people to take. And I think in the end, it's not so much. I think that even if people think, well, it'll it'll upset the apple cart or it'll create tension or it'll create disequilibrium or whatever, you know, what are you afraid of? And I just think that that's the thing that gets us in trouble. You're afraid of your own career, your own position. If I do this, you know, I'll lose my job. If, if I do this and it fails, you know, I'll be embarrassed by it. Those are the things that trip us up. And, you know, if you just think about the purest forms of courage, like, you know, the, you know, greater, greater love has no man than this. So the, the act. So I think about things like what possesses someone in a foxhole to throw their body on a grenade that ends up in a hole where six of their friends are. It is that there is no, there is no hesitation. There's no interruption of what must be done by a fear of what will happen to me. It's more thinking if I don't fall on that, six people will die and the mission is compromised. That's what happens in those cases. So I think what ends up tripping us up is we get afraid of things, real things, perceived things, imaginary things. So, well, you know, if I do this, everyone will hate me. Actually, they're not even paying attention to you. You'll be all right. You know, sort of a, you create these imaginary things that are somehow these big boogeymen that are going to get you and they're not even real. And then the real things, they can hurt you, but that's, that's our job, right? Yeah. 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 I, somebody once told me, and I think it's right in line with, with what you just said, you know, if, if you're facing a difficult decision, separate out the decision from the consequence. And, and it's, it's, some have pushed back with me on that to say, well, you, you know, you can't make blind decisions because because there are. Con- but in essence, what that's saying is if it's the right decision to make, courageous leadership says that's the right decision to make, period. End of story. Then you deal with the consequences. You, you, you and I have a, someone that we mutually know who's now with the Lord. who's was a significant person here at the university over the years, a donor and friend of the school who's recently passed away. And he used to say to me all the time, sort of 
watching what I was doing and encouraging me and actually really being supportive. And he used to say, you know, it's really not that hard to know what the right thing to do is. Doing the right thing is where people get tripped up. And I do think that that's true. And I think what we have to do then is think, what are the character problems that actually we have to work on as Christians to get us past that? You know, um, it's said, I think it was Lincoln, but it was said that, you know, that adversity shapes character. And I think it was Lincoln who said, I, I don't think adversity shapes character as much as it reveals it. You know, so the issue is that we find ourselves in a, in a situation of adversity that's calling for real courage and real character. It's often revealing what's there. And the time to get working on that is when you're not in the middle of crisis, you know, and to start thinking, what am I really afraid of? Talk through that, think through that. I, I think a lot of times it's just we get tripped up with either with fears about things that are real that could harm us or our institutions or the people we love or care about or our employees, or we perceive that that will happen or we just imagine things that aren't really going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, the, the thing that was powerful for me in separating out to, to consequences, the, the consequence may actually be a negative consequence, right? The, the decision that you make, even the two, a couple of historical references that you've made, those, those men, it's nice you know, to reflect back and see how things worked out in, in making those courageous decisions, things worked out, right? But they don't always work out. And I think that's some of the fear that comes into play is, well, if I make this decision, it, it could very well mean that I lose my position as president of a university or a college, right? That shouldn't drive whether you make the decision right. or not. No, exactly. You know, we, we made a decision years ago and, and uh, here related to how long it would take students to finish their education, and we shortened it by as much as three or four semesters for some students. And the criticism was, well, you know, it's, it's going to hurt the school. You're going to get criticized for making a major change, and it's going to hurt you financially. And we just sat down and said, here's what the nut is. This is what's going to happen. If the worst case scenario, it's going to be this amount of money. If we can mitigate it, it'll be this amount of money. If we get blessed and this, it's this amount of money. And the board and I said, you know what, we're willing to take the whole thing on the chin because we think it's the right thing to do for families. That's what we're going to do. And and that's just it. And it was painful and there were consequences and we had to pare back and reduction in force and all those things. And people would say, well, you know, if we hadn't made that decision, we wouldn't have had to lay X number of people off. And my response was, and we would have had 50 students to trade over the next three years and smaller classes coming in because we weren't willing to do what was right by them financially. Those are hard things. And, you know, you're not always forgiven for them. People hold grudges. You have to be willing to sort of do that. I think that the courageous thing also requires of us, not just the virtue of courage, but a way of framing consequences, as you talked about, where you understand you can't let them harden your heart. You have to have thick skin and a soft heart, right? I mean, that's really what it is. You have, you have to have thick skin and a soft heart. You have to have strong but gentle hands. You have to be, you know, as Jesus said, shrewd, right? You know and gentle. You have to sort of recognize that part of being a Christian is to be a paradoxical individual, and you can't really be an effective leader if you're not willing to do that. Wow. Wow. Powerful. So close us out. We have uh, young emerging leaders who listen on the podcast. We've talked about, you know, leadership styles. Is it a style? We've talked about romance of leadership. Perhaps they're drawn and, and, and somebody has told them they, they could potentially be a leader. What's just one final word of advice that you'd give to that young, aspiring 20-something leader that people have identified as they grow in their leadership? Yeah, I think that you have to see leadership the way that it's pictured between Christ and the church, between husband and wife between pastor and flock, 
You have to see it. It is not what you will get from it, but what you must be willing to give for it. You have to be willing to be poured out as a drink offering. You have to, you have to take on the, the mantle of leadership, sacrificing yourself um, as a leader. It's not what you get from it. It's that you're willing to give of yourself to do that. Apart from that, um, it, it eventually will catch up to you. Well, thank you, Todd. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your wisdom sharing uh, some of your some of your perspectives. Uh, ABHE really appreciates you. You serve on the board, and like I said, we've gotten to know each other, and you've been in several of our events, and and you've spoken, and and you always do such a wonderful job of of truth telling, but doing it with grace and making us all better as leaders. So, so thank you very much. Appreciate you uh, being a guest on the on the podcast. It's very mutual. Appreciate your leadership at ABHE. We love being a part of it. And, and I've really enjoyed being in those uh, settings and being able to share. It's been great. Great. Fantastic. Well, until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.